Has Jesus ever scared you? We're going to look today at an encounter that someone had with Jesus, which petrified them. I want us to see Jesus clearly and to know uh, who he is and what he's really like and how to respond to him. So we're going to be reading from uh, the first chapter of Revelation. Revelation was a book uh, written probably by John, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, who also wrote uh, the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And he'd been exiled uh, from what's now called Turkey uh, to an island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. Uh, he was sent there, I think, by the government because, of, uh, because he was telling people about Jesus and they were fed up with that. Uh, so he was in isolation from the whole church community. But whilst he was there, uh, God gave him a vision, uh, gave him a revelation, uh, which he wrote down and sent it back to the churches in Turkey. And uh, he did this in a style of writing that's known as apocalyptic. It's very unusual. Um, It's highly symbolic, lots of images being used. Uh, The main thing about it is it's like the curtain between heaven and earth is being pulled apart so that we can see what's really going on. We're going to read the first part of this, where John meets Jesus. Jesus, remember, who he knew on earth really, really well. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his hair were white, like white wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as I dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. Let's look at what John saw and heard And then let's respond. This is actually by far the longest description of Jesus' appearance in the whole Bible. Uh, But it's clearly not meant to be a photographic statement about what he looks like. Uh, John is using Jewish imagery and cultural references that his original readers would have probably understood pretty much straight away. And he's trying to uh, explain to them or or help them to share what he had experienced. They're they're meant to have like a kind of cumulative force rather than going to nitty gritty detail about each one of them. And so what I'm going to do today is just going to kind of hit each one, give you a brief explanation of what each of those images means. And hopefully that will give us a sense of who Jesus is and what he's like. It starts with John saying, I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. Trumpets aren't just about playing music in the Bible. They are about announcements and even more, they're about summonses. 
Uh, when God called Israel to meet with him on Mount Sinai, there was a trumpet blast. Trumpets herald the arrival of kings and the start of wars. And in the New Testament, we're told that the glorious return of Jesus will be announced with trumpets. So a voice like a trumpet is saying something big is happening here. John turns and sees seven golden lampstands and verse 20 tells us that this is a picture uh, meaning the church. Um, seven usually means completion. So uh, this isn't just the, the seven churches that are listed. It, it could probably mean that all churches throughout history. And there's a particular reference to an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, uh, with this use of lampstands. Uh, this uh, vision that Zechariah was given uh, was to encourage people who are facing opposition as they try to build God's temple and who are also just feeling kind of sad themselves as they looked at the state of the temple and thought, this just doesn't look very glorious at all. But God promises them this wonderful thing. He says that not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how the, the dwelling place of God will be built. And so John's using that reference to say, and that is still the case. Jesus will build his church and it will be beautiful. Whatever the church look, may look like to us, this is what she really is. A glorious, light-giving dwelling place of God. And so we must value it. We must prioritize it, uh, even in weird times, if we're to faithfully follow Jesus. Because it's here that we see Jesus. He is in the midst of his church. He often feels distant to us, but Revelation shows us, no, he's right here with us. He knows his church. He loves it. He dwells in it. John then starts his description of what Jesus looked like by using this phrase, one like a son of man. This is a clear reference to a prophecy that Daniel has in the Old Testament, which uses the same phrase. And Jesus referenced this himself when he was on trial. In Daniel's vision, there was a great conflict with these mighty looking uh, beasts of the earth. And God just destroys them. And it's a, it's a team of God and uh, one like a son of man. And that one like a son of man, it said of him that to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is not... He's not like a potential candidate for something. Uh, he is not hoping that things are going to go his way. He has all authority from God. And the phrase itself, one like a son of man, uh, reminds us that Jesus is simultaneously like us. He was born. He is a human, but he is also divine, the eternal God. We're then told that he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is the kind of thing that uh, priests and rulers would wear. So although Jesus came to us as a servant, uh, he has great authority. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, how many times do you see pictures of Jesus having white hair? I mean, hardly ever, right? Uh, now, that's mostly because we know that he was in his mid-30s when he ministered on earth. And so that's what we kind of imagine him as looking like. And artists tend to give God the father the white hair and Jesus some other color hair to kind of distinguish between the two of them. And also in, in the West, uh, many people now consider white hair to be a, a sign of weakness, uh, maybe even irrelevance. Uh, but in uh, most Middle Eastern and African cultures, uh, white hair is a, uh, a sign of, of dignity 
and of wisdom and is given great respect. And that's what John is saying, how Jesus has and how Jesus should be treated. But there's something else too, because in that Daniel 7 vision, the one with the uh, one like a son of man, uh, we're told that God has hair as white as wool. And now we're told that Jesus has hair as white as wool. What's John doing? He's blending the images together so that we see that Jesus is God. We're then told that his eyes were like a flame of fire. Jesus can see through anything. He sees everything. His knowledge is perfect. Fire is also a sign of judgment. It destroys all which is false and it keeps only the good and the true. Jesus does that. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Bronze was often used by armies uh, in John's day. And so there's a military idea here of battle and conquest. And people often uh, be victorious. People would often be described as trampling over uh, their enemies with their feet. Verse 15 uh, says that his voice was like the roar of many waters. Uh, If you're imagining waterfalls, this is kind of Victoria Falls, Niagara uh, kind of territory. Uh, John was probably thinking about the the sea crashing into cliffs. Uh, It's not the kind of thing we experience at like Cramond or Portobello. You need to go a little further north or south to experience this, the the roar of many waters. And when you you do uh, sense that, you feel the force of it. It's, It's like a glimpse of the greatness and the power of God. And of course, again, there's an Old Testament uh, reference going on here. Ezekiel 43 verse 2 says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So John wants you to connect his vision with Ezekiel's vision, which is also about this glorious God coming to be with his people. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. We're told in verse 20 uh, that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which is not the most helpful explanation we've ever received. Uh, I just don't think we can be sure if these mean actual angels or human leaders or something else. All we can be sure of is that Jesus' right hand is used for action and rescue. And so for the church to be there is for her to be held utterly secure. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The word for sword here is for like a massive blade that's used in like cavalry charges. And Isaiah prophesied that what comes from the mouth of God's chosen one would destroy all opposition and bring God's rule forever like a mighty sword would. His face was shining like the sun in full strength. Remember, this is written by someone living in the Middle East, uh, not in Scotland. So his, his sense of the power of the sun is even greater uh, than those of us who, uh, who live here. And yet again, it's Old Testament imagery of God being applied to Jesus. Jesus' divinity and his goodness is so great that it radiates out from him. Now, John had seen this before. He was on the mountain uh, when uh, Jesus was transfigured. His face shone. And as John then wrote in his gospel, light triumphs over darkness and it offers life and hope. Jesus does this for all those who are living in dark places. All this, John tells us, is what Jesus was like in his vision. And he uses the word like a lot, reminding us that he's like, it, it wasn't, it didn't look as that, but it was kind of like that. That's how I felt. And I'm trying to put things that are beyond comprehension into words. 
As the African-American pastor S.M. Lockridge put it at the climax of his glorious um, monologue about Jesus, he, he speaks about Jesus for minutes and minutes, and it's wonderful and glorious. And he says, I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. I think John would agree with that. And then the voice, like trumpets and the roar of many waters, speaks, and it tells us about himself. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. John's already used this uh, to describe God. So again, this is Jesus as God. And, and it's, it's about how there was nothing before him and there'll be nothing uh, that can outlast him. He is before and beyond all things. The scholar Richard Borkham says that Jesus is the origin and goal of all history. He alone is eternal. Then Jesus says, I am the living one. You won't be surprised. Uh, This is another Old Testament reference, another title that was given to God multiple times, now being given to Jesus. And it makes the contrast with dead idols uh, that, that people in the world chase after, but that can do them no good. They've got no life. They've got no power in them. There is one and one only living God. And then Jesus says, I died. And and we know this and we're familiar with this. But this vision should just cause us to be amazed by that again, because this is who Jesus, these descriptions of Jesus' power and his glory and his might and his majesty and his just greatness. And then he says, I died. And you're like, how did you even ever get a cold? You are so mighty. You died. It's counterintuitive to us, but it was God's plan all along. And this should remind us that God doesn't always do what we expect and that he can use even the worst of things for his good. And then Jesus says, behold, I'm alive forevermore. And this is where all Christian hope is found, that the cross was not merely an inspiring example of self-sacrifice, but a conquest. The powers of sin and death that have reigned over all humans since the day of Adam were defeated by Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and then glorifying resurrection. As the old hymn goes, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Then he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Uh, Keys in the New Testament represent authority. And so this is saying that death and the place of the dead belong to Jesus. They should hold no fear for the Christian because Jesus is in charge of them. I am not in any way, shape or form looking forward to dying, but I can now look forward to death because death has become a servant of my king and he uses it to bring me into his presence forever. And this is why John keeps asserting that Jesus is God. He isn't just another inspiring personality or wise teacher or even doer of great miracles. That would not be enough to save us from our sins, uh, to defeat the powers that are greater than us in this world and to reconcile us to God. Only God could do this. And in Christ, he has. Let's see how John responds to this vision. Firstly, he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Jesus doesn't want you just to hear some things about him and then go back on with your life and forget it all. He wants you to see him and to know him. Maybe you're watching this and you don't know him. 
You've heard, but you've not seen. You've got questions, but you haven't met the answer. There's still time for you to join our Alpha course, which starts on Monday, the 18th of January at 7.30 online. It's a place for you to bring uh, your questions and to explore who Jesus is. It's friendly and it's free and you can sign up even right now. The link will be put in the YouTube comments. They're on our website as well. And for those of us who are following Jesus, uh, we need eyes of faith to see Jesus as he really is. The world is in chaos. The church can seem in a mess. Our life is uncertain and it can make us ask, is Jesus really powerful? Is he really good? John had those questions and he shared with us the answer Jesus gave him. So keep turning your, uh, your gaze to Jesus again and again. Give him your attention. There's so many things clamoring for our attention. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. Use your Bible reading to see him. Use your prayer times to praise him. John then says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is a common response in the Bible to the presence of God. In this scenario, it is not like an act of politeness. It's not if you were to go before the queen, you think I I ought to bow down. No, this is reflex. This is duck and cover. This is save me. Now, for us who are rarely, uh, if ever, going to encounter God in this way before we die, we have to make this as a considered decision. We have to choose to do this. We believe that Jesus is worthy of all our praise, all our worship, worthy of our whole life. So we have to make a decision. And I get that particularly at the moment, this is hard. Yeah, singing worship to Jesus in a live stream right now is difficult. Our worship musicians do an amazing job. But each of us has practical and emotional reasons for struggling at that moment. I find, you know, to be honest, I find it hard to be in that mindset, you know, the lap, music coming through the laptop and I'm in my own house and there's stuff going on. And yet I'm also welcoming the presence of the almighty God of Revelation 1. Like that doesn't tend to feel automatic to me. I need to choose to make that something I'm aware of because that is what's going on. Now, of course, John's visionary experience was especially powerful, but he was by himself and Jesus met with him through the same Holy Spirit that is given to us. This idea of worship, of course, is far more uh, than when we sing. Uh, it's about our whole lives and, and the challenge is the same, to apply this vision of Jesus to, to everything that we do. Jesus is not to be trifled with. He is not to be taken for granted or mocked or ignored or considered like a vending machine for our prayer requests. The things he says are commands, not suggestions. He is right now as John saw him. And one day we will see him like that face to face. How do we live, therefore, in anticipation of that? Romans 12 says that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He has given us great liberty, 
But that is not that we are free to ignore his will. Rather, it's that we would seek him and freely choose to obey him, even at the cost of our own lives. Here's the third way in which we're to respond. Jesus says to John, fear not. To which the only response is, really? Like, really? Of course John was afraid. Like, there's blazing light and heat. There's blasting noise. There's matchless power and holiness and authority. And it's right in front of him. Of course he's afraid. Like, what are we compared to Jesus? He's so great and so good. And we are so not. Fear is exactly the right way to respond. But, John says, he laid his right hand on me. That right hand which John had just seen holding seven stars is now touching him. It's the same right hand that touched lepers to heal them, touched children to welcome them. It's the same right hand that a nail was driven through to hold him to the cross so that God could reach across a great divide to us and bring him, bring us safely to himself, no longer as enemies, but as sons and daughters. No longer afraid, but coming with confidence. We can come to God with confidence. Reverence and humbled awe? Yes, definitely. And confidence. Confidence that that he will welcome us if we've surrendered our lives to him. Confidence that he hears our prayers. Confidence that he will bring us to be with him in joy forever whatever happens to us in this life. Lots of news and social media organisations have started uh, doing like fact checks or or reality checks uh, to help us deal with all the confusion and misinformation and lying uh, that there is out there. I feel like this vision that Jesus uh, gave to John is like the ultimate facts check, the ultimate reality check. This is the one thing you need to know that Jesus is glorious, wise and mighty, that he is alive and has triumphed over the grave, that he is God and he has reached out his hand to us in love and saving power. Let's reflect on that. And then let's praise his great and glorious name. Oh, Lord Jesus, almighty God, we honour you for who you are. We ask you to help us see you as you are and to live as we should. Thank you that you are so great and yet you've reached out your hand to us. Oh, Lord, we love you. Help us to praise you as we should. Amen.